Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates the unsolved death of federal prosecutor Jonathan Luna in 2003. It is a true story. But the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. Basically could not come to the office, like he was locked out escorted out of Department of Justice space and could not come back in. And at that point, Jonathan is like really pressing me to work this case out. It just seemed like bombs were bursting in air. The day before Jonathan went missing, he had reached out and said, hey, you'll want to be in court in the morning. And to my surprise, Judge Quarles ordered pretrial to sit down with the two of us and go through pretrial's file. This is episode three of season three, Amazing Grace. I'm your host, David Payne. It's been 10 years since a federal prosecutor was found dead in rural Lancaster County. We will find out who did this. Was he trying to stage some sort of attack and went too far? I'm a crook, you a crook, he a crook, everybody a crook in prison. I remember this very vividly. And they're both like standing They're like there's urgency to this. And they're really kind of excited and told him right away, you are not getting this file. You're not getting this file. You're not getting these documents. But you can ask questions. As a pretrial services supervisor, Barbara Skidmore played an unusual role in our federal court system. Her job was to act as a neutral agent of the court to assess the risk profile of people awaiting trial and to recommend conditions for their possible release. And on the evening of December 2nd, 2003, at the end of the second day of the Stash House Records trial, and just 36 hours before Jonathan Luna's mysterious death, Skidmore found two prominent defense attorneys at her door with a court directive, ordering her to tell them about cooperating witness Warren Grace. We were notified by the court that the judge was going to let them talk to us. But I remember that this was critical. This was after hours. It was kind of like six or seven o'clock at night. I remember it was controversial and was a big deal because this is not something we would typically do, divulge information that was otherwise confidential. It's a dark December night, and Skidmore and her colleague would be awaiting the tag-teaming by two of Baltimore's leading defense attorneys on a court-ordered fishing expedition on Warren Grace. Jonathan Luna was either directed by the court or chose not to attend. The record is not clear. So they are in the room. I mean, it's not a large office, and they're both pretty high-strung. Kept uh, Ravenel a little bit more. I, I mean, I vividly remember this. I was like, whoa. I envision him as kind of the Johnny Cochran of Baltimore. He was in, I would say, Ken is slick, you know, represents a lot of people. 
always dressed to the nines, you know, put together, you know, had a real presence about him. And a, but, you know, he was smart. And Archie was more of a easygoing kind of guy, not more self-deprecating, whereas Ken had a little bit more stature. But as the defense attorney started digging that night, it was the easygoing Tuminelli who would get amped up at what they would find. I mean, I was shocked. And I, that's what I said to Quarles. I'm, I'm really shocked that, you know, this happened. Our interest was what occurred, if anything, that resulted in him being released without pretrial supervision, subject to the supervision of the, you know, government agents. And what the attorneys found out was that Grace had not been a model citizen while under either the court's or the FBI's supervision, so much so that the pretrial services division wanted to wash their hands of him. He had violated the terms of his release, and we had sent some confidential memos to the court because it involved the FBI and their relationship with the defendant and sort of not being truthful with us about what Warren Grace was doing. I mean, it was crazy. We knew that Warren Grace was not truthful and he was not a good guy. So we had written to the It wasn't just that Grace wasn't a good guy that defense counsel learned, though. It was that Grace was slipping his electronic bracelet and terrorizing his neighborhood, all while under the supervision of the FBI. That was not a typical scenario, that people actually were able to take the bracelet off without a tamper showing. It was unbelievable, really. I mean, that created a whole investigation of its own about how that happened. Did you all talk to the agent about him being off the the bracelet too, or? I think we did talk with the agent because we thought that the agent was a partner with us to assure the safety of the community. And, but it was clear that the agents and the particular agent didn't seem to be on the same page of supervising Warren Grace. Were they cutting him more slack or were they oh. just? Uh, yes. I, yes. Okay. I mean, yeah, crazy stuff. He was getting like privileges. That's not part of the deal. They're supposed to be in your office or, you know, under your surveillance, under your supervision. Cooperation didn't mean you got to go to the record store or, you know, go to the movies with your girlfriend. Uh, no. And I think I remember telling the officer, tell him he can't do that. You know, that's not acceptable. And it wasn't acceptable for another reason that the defense attorneys would soon discover buried in Skidmore's files and not previously disclosed to the defense. A reason that would make the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and Jonathan Luna by extension look very bad. The agents had set up a second buy from Smith. And the agents searched the car that Grace is in. And lo and behold, over the sun visor, there is a plastic package that had capsules of heroin in it. And the incredible thing was, all three of the prior purchases, the drugs were always packaged the same way. So when you got this information from pretrial services, what's the import of that? The import is that like immediately, he's going out to buy the drugs 
And he already has drugs in his car packaged identically to what he has previously turned in that supposedly he's purchased from Poindexter and Smith. And he's got this cash. It's clear to me, at least, he's going to keep the cash. He's going to turn in what's over the visor and give them the drugs. It would have been the best defense I ever had. And I think a jury's got to conclude, you know, there's no way you prove beyond a reasonable doubt. That bit of fact that excited them, frankly, not that it wasn't a big deal, but for us, I mean, these are drug offenders. Of course they're doing this thing. This is why you don't trust them. So I get their excitement. But the thing for us is that, yeah, he was doing that, plus he flipped his bracelet, plus he's supposed to be working with the FBI and he's a rogue criminal out there. To take a step back here, the reason this inside baseball detail about the handling of government witness Warren Grace is so critical is that it goes directly to whether Jonathan had a reason to take his own life or if someone else had a reason to take it from him. You see, defense counsel were ecstatic they found reasonable doubt for their case in Skidmore's files. But if you're Jonathan Luna or his boss, Tom DiBaggio, or the FBI, this disclosure is not going to look very good. For one thing, it is about to become public that the law and order U.S. attorney's primary witness has been dealing drugs and threatening people while under FBI supervision. Moreover, the prosecutor's office was complicit in the FBI's desire to keep Warren Grace out of jail to make their case stronger, and they convinced a federal judge to go along. You know, the government would go to bat for people that they were, had cooperating, but it just seemed they really went to bat for this guy. There was a memo in the file to Judge Smolkett that basically said, Judge, we don't want you to revoke his bail or his pretrial conditions of release because we need him to work with the FBI on this case. And it would hurt our case if you did revoke his bail. Do you remember that? I don't remember it specifically, but I remember that the government wanted him out and we thought he was dangerous and that he was so dangerous and not a good person to be out that we weren't, you, you, you go ahead, judge, you let him out, but we're not gonna supervise him. This, this guy was so dangerous that I was endangering the officer who was supervising him in the community. The memo written by Jonathan's colleague, Jackie Rodriguez Koss, to the judge handling Warren Grace's pending case was remarkable for several reasons. But for Jonathan's purposes, and for understanding his state of mind the night before he died, perhaps the biggest question was, why hadn't he disclosed its existence to defense counsel? Did Jonathan even know about the memo? If he didn't, he was probably negligent in his trial preparation. But if he did, he was about to be publicly exposed in Judge Quarles' courtroom as a prosecutor who hid the ball. And the only way to make either situation go away was to sweep an alleged related conduct murder under the rug. As soon as we walk out of there, you know, I thought to myself, Jonathan has got to go to his supervisors and say, look, you got to give me approval to get rid of that potential murder. Not only was there a problem with Grace, but clearly there's this letter that Jackie, you know, that's all going to come out is, you know, what the government and 
So I, you know, essentially told him that I'm assuming that Jonathan went back and talked to whoever he talked to. And Jonathan knows what's in the file. Why do you say Jonathan knows what's in the file? It's a pretrial services file. What is your... Because Jonathan was in the case from the beginning against these guys. And while Jonathan and Rodriguez are handling this case, the issue with Grace occurs. They know that that's originally the reason he was taken off of pretrial release, I think. That got reported to pretrial services. And there is further evidence beyond Tuminelli's supposition that Jonathan was aware of what was in pretrial's files. But it was odd that Jonathan wasn't in the meeting with the defense attorneys, you know, in our office. He didn't come there. Obviously, it was because he already knew what we knew. The government had access to that information because he was cooperating with the government. I also remember Jonathan coming to our office, not with Archie and Ken, but separately about this. I think it was that same night. It may have been either before or after they came. Would you have shown him the file, allow him to flip through the file, or just he ask questions? I think he just asked questions. Quarles knew Warren Grace was a shady, shady dude um, who, you know, had some issues. And that Jonathan should have known about it. Only in hindsight did it was like, oh my God, he was just in our office. This is crazy. And hindsight is how we all are evaluating the last few days and hours of Jonathan's life. Searching for clues as to whether something could possibly drive Jonathan Luna to stab himself 36 times, 36 hours later. Somebody Somewhere will return right after this break. When Jonathan left the office that night, after a difficult day two of his trial in the Stash House records case, he was met with an additional stressor at home, a stressor that would spill over to the next day. What happens first is Jonathan was late, and Judge Quarles was one of these judges that was a stickler. If you were like 30 seconds late, he'd find you. Court reporter Ned Richardson explains how the judge reacted when Jonathan would explain the reason he was late was because his one-year-old was so sick he had to be taken to the emergency room. But I thought he was really very compassionate with him for about two minutes. And I thought he said something about Jonathan had a sick kid. And I think he asked him, how's your kid? And that was very nice and very polite exchange. And then we went downhill from there. And I don't know what, I kept thinking through the whole trial. Jonathan was so distracted, he couldn't keep it together. And I thought, something is wrong. Something is really bad. I mean, he kept losing it. We'd be going down one one row and he'd, he'd jump onto another thing. And I thought, oh my heavens. And the question was why? Was it his sick child? Was it the stress of the trial? Was it the stress of his job being in jeopardy? Whatever the root cause, Jonathan's day three of the trial would get off to a rough start. He would put Warren Grace back on the stand to finish up his testimony. And in doing so, 
He would try to take the sting out of what he expected the defense to bring up, the government's mishandling of Warren Grace, a strategy that would infuriate the blindsided defense attorneys and ultimately the judge as well. This is after the judge knows that we know about Grace. We're at the bench and Ken's saying what he's saying. We're saying this was never disclosed. And I'm saying, judge, you know, in all the years I've been here, I've never seen anything like this. Is Jonathan caught in a lie? He hasn't disclosed this information. So you potentially got a Brady issue. You've got a jinx issue. I mean, is he embarrassed by it? Is he upset yeah. that he's been caught? He, he is. You'd think that there would be some kind of response from Jonathan. But he was like expressionless. I mean, it was like he knew. It was look, it was clear that he knew there was a problem and that he had a problem. This was all improper. I mean, he should be apologizing, but he's not going to do that. Jonathan may not have been in the mood or the position to apologize that afternoon. But he did set about to salvage his case with a plea. After the lunch break, he would tell the judge that he and defense counsel had reached a plea agreement, only to have that plea break down again because of the alleged related murder case against Poindexter. Frustrated and frankly angered by Jonathan's failure to be able to resolve the issues, the judge would make a series of rulings. First, he would allow the defense to interview Warren Grace without the government being present on the day after next. And he would direct Jonathan to turn over all the documents in pretrial services files, including the memo by Jackie Koss by the end of the day. And Jonathan was standing there because Jackie Rodriguez wasn't there, but he's standing there and he was a party to this. And you've got to consider like dismissing the damn case. And here we are, we not only they don't disclose it under Brady, but they're going to try and put my client away, potentially for life, knowing that he may not have even sold him the Grace straw. Who knows? Jonathan didn't say a word. He just had this look like, how the hell do I get out of this? By the time court ended that third day, Jonathan thought he may have a plan to get out of the jam he was in and he reinitiated the plea negotiations with defense attorneys as they left the courtroom. And from court reporter Ned Richardson, we get the next inkling of the stress Jonathan may have been under as his case went sideways. Well, the part that I remember most is where we had stopped for the day and my office adjoined the courtroom, just a little hallway, and I walk right into my office they were standing outside of my door, and they started out, it seemed pretty uh, amicable, but then they got louder and louder. Who's they? I remember Archie Tuminelli, and I remember all I could see was his feet. They were right at my door, these, these two, with Jonathan, and they were going at it. And I thought, oh my God, I mean, this is a ruckus. I don't need this. So I told him, move. And that's the last time I saw Jonathan alive. I don't remember that, but I'm not surprised because I was the one that felt really aggrieved because Ken's client, up until that point, they're offering him a deal that his client wants. But I'm really aggrieved because 
Jonathan's doing everything he can to avoid what he should be doing. So yeah, I'm not surprised. With less than 11 hours to live, Jonathan does what he surely must have done reluctantly, taking an aggrieved defense attorney upstairs to meet with his supervisor to see how they might work around this alleged related murder charge. So I go up to his office and Jonathan's in there. Now you gotta remember, he's telling me all along that he can't get approval, he can't get approval, he can't get approval to give up the murder. And the first thing you know, I realized, he's there with a assistant US attorney named Jim Warwick. So I go start to explain to him what's happening and I tell him, look, he's talking about 10 years, but he won't give up this murder. And Warwick, I mean, it didn't take long. You know, he hears this in about five minutes. He, he looked at Jonathan and he said, that's not a problem. What's the problem? He said, there's no reason you can't agree to that. And so Jonathan said, oh, all right, I'm assuming. And of course, you had to wonder why the U.S. Attorney's Office would give up an alleged related murder charge so quickly. Whose interest was that in and what was going on behind the scenes? It's like it never happened that he was telling me that he couldn't do it, he couldn't do it. And all of a sudden, he knew before I even walked in that room that Warwick knew what was going on and that they're gonna like agree to it. He's, Cause he wasn't surprised when Warwick says, you can agree to that. And I think the only thing that changed is that they knew in that office that we had now seen what the hell's in that file. So why do you think Jonathan was holding on to that murder? Did he not want to be embarrassed with Warwick? I think Jonathan's holding on to it because that's what the office would have normally have done. Up until that information is disclosed, Tuminelli doesn't know anything about any of this. So why should we give up the murder? I mean, ethically, they're obligated to provide that information. So let me ask you this. Jonathan didn't strike me as a person to be somebody who would hide the ball unless there was a reason to do it. But I just wonder if the fact that he was concerned about his job and didn't want to rock the boat played into that. I would imagine it would. I mean, look, DiBaggio, from everything I was told, and this was through the grapevine coming from prosecutors, that DiBaggio wanted to fire him. And I had to imagine that that weighed on Jonathan as he drove home from the courthouse to have dinner with his wife, his mother-in-law, his daughter, and a sick baby. But could it explain a complete mental breakdown five hours later? Or would something else happen to intervene? And when I leave, my understanding is he's going to do the plea agreement. And he says, I'm going to stay here and finish that. And I'll see you tomorrow. I think I probably talked to him and then he left the message. That's consistent with what you say. What I have is the meeting breaks up around 6 p.m. Yeah. At about 6.30, he goes home for dinner with his wife and his mother-in-law to Elkridge. Yeah. Comes back to the office at 8.48. At 9.06, my notes say, Tuminelli says he received a call at home from Luna telling him he had finished Smith but needed to finish Poindexter. Also said he had to go home again, but would return to finish. Does that ring a bell? Well, yeah, it, it does. And I believe it was from a voicemail. And it was one of those older 
machines where you had a little tape. So here's a real critical question. Do you have that tape still? You know what I did? I remember now that you asked me that. There was a fireplace with a mantle, and there was like a cloisonne Chinese vase that had a lid on it. And I put that tape in there for safekeeping. But we moved like two and a half years ago. I will look and see if it's still there. You know what? You're right about one thing. I wouldn't have thrown it away. That, that could have been the last call that he made. I mean... It was. I'm pretty sure from the FBI, that was the last contact anyone had from Jonathan. Or was it? Allegedly, Ravino got a call from him as well that night around the same time, but there's no record of that. You definitely Yeah, I guess he probably did tell Ravino. Yeah, but because I know what he did. He When I left, he was going to stay there and, and finish the plea agreements. And then I got information that he was leaving to go home, he was going to have dinner and do whatever, and then he was going back to the courthouse and finish that evening. Of course, we know now that never happened. Jonathan returned to the office that night after dinner at 8.48 p.m. He finished one plea agreement, the one for Ken Ravenel's client, but left the more difficult one for Arky's client unfinished. When he got up from his desk without his glasses or cell phone, and drove out of the courthouse building at 11.38 p.m. He would be found dead five hours later. Next time on Somebody Somewhere. I talked to a couple of the court security officers and somebody said, well, there was another car right behind me. There was concern almost immediately. I mean, a missing federal prosecutor is a missing federal prosecutor. The initial inclination of the U.S. Attorney's Office was somebody from this case had something to do with Jonathan not showing up. And I said, the last person in the world that wants Jonathan Luna to be killed was my client. There goes the devil telling me to lie again. Since I'm around me, says it's all right to pretend that you can get more than you give. Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. Original score and voiceover work provided by Hallie Payne. Artwork provided by Evan McGlynn and Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Jonathan Luna case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps, and we really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Dear God, I hate to say I'm sorry. Just want you to love Even though I still love money I need more money